Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me mention families and global transitions. FIGT, for those of you who don't know, is a welcoming forum that connects globally mobile to both community and resources. It was started back in 1997 when Ruth Van Raken, who is well known for co-authoring the book, Third Culture Kids, Growing Up Among Worlds, invited three expat friends to talk about the needs of their own expat families. Eventually, this would become an amazing volunteer-run nonprofit organization with an international conference. Why is this important? Well, I've been fortunate to be part of the community for years, meeting some awesome people at these conferences around the world. And my next guest was one of them. I suspect I met Miriam Adimofiore back in 2017 when FIGT held its first conference in The Hague in the Netherlands. As a member of the board of directors, I was co-leading the Millennial Forum, and Miriam, who was also part of that conference as a Parfit Pasco writing resident, was part of that session. We've managed to keep in touch over the years and since have connected over discussions on black and brown, non-Western perspectives in expat spaces. Miriam, who is Pakistani, is the author of This Messy Mobile Life where she uses both her experiences and research to help others create an expat life by design. In this episode, we definitely take a deep dive into her own story, one that is anchored in her interfaith, intercultural, international experiences as a Pakistani woman married to an Italian-German man raising global nomads. Her life includes nine countries and counting, starting with her birth and early years in Bahrain. And given that context, it only seems to make sense that we discuss what she's learned and the perspective she's developed as a South Asian brown woman living in all these spaces. At this point, it would be really easy to see why she titled her book, The Messy Mobile Life. Because if there's anyone who's had to handle the nuances of identity across four continents, it's Miriam. Welcome to The Global Chatter. So today's interview for me, it's, I think it's been a long time coming because I've known Miriam for a couple of years and I'm at the point where I think for a couple of guests, all roads lead back to families and global transitions (laughs) because I had, I had Jerry Jones and I've had a couple of people on the podcast. And so, uh, I guess it's a good time to plug FIGT because there's so many cool people like my next guest that that you'll hear from. But Miriam, welcome to the Global Chatter. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amanda. Yes, uh, we met, I think, over breakfast at FIGT about two or three years ago in The Hague, if I remember oh correctly. It feels like yesterday, but I think it's been about three years. Um, wow. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And you're someone where I think we both, we both kind of travel in the, well, we do both travel in the same circles. And so we know many of the same people and I, and we'll get into it obviously with your experiences as a third culture kid, but it's, it's always exciting when I, when I get folks who are writers and, and by the way, I'm going to plug her book early. She has got a great book, which I'm going to, we're going to talk about towards, towards the end, but you are someone who I always kind of enjoy the stuff that you write and and the way you communicate, because I I believe you bring a perspective that so often we don't hear. And so I always like to start off with a show like this. I always have to start off with where in the world are you? It's sort of like Carmen San Diego because, (laughs) because nobody is, no, no one's been in the same location yet. So for everyone who's listening, where are you currently? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question to start off with. <laughs> uh, so currently I'm living in Portugal. I live in a tiny seaside uh, village called Pescais, uh, just about 20 minutes away from Lisbon. So I'm just imagine me, you know, looking out to the sea, uh, <laughs> beautiful, sunny weather, you know, uh, blue sky. <laughs> that's pretty much where I am right now, enjoying the life in Portugal. See, and I'm I'm so mad at, at y'all because I I have a there was a guest Monday Young was on and she's in the south of France so mm. same thing looking out <laughs> the Mediterranean and I'm like I look out and see a parking lot there's no, there's no there's no there's no blue sky well there's blue sky but there's no like beautiful sea and 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 sun in that way and I, I'm so jealous I I need COVID to end so I can travel because Portugal has been on my list. Yes, and it's open for travel for 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 most of the world. Um, if wow. you're American, you can come here just a negative PCR test. So oh, nice, uh, yeah. <laughs> FYI, <laughs> and at least for right now. How long? So how long has your family at this point been in Portugal? Uh, exactly a year, Amanda, because we moved here last year, um, right about the end of July, beginning of August. So we've just celebrated our our first Portugal anniversary uh, last month, oh. and um, are looking forward to yeah things being a bit more open now because yeah you know moving in the pandemic last year was just was just a, a different level of crazy and um it was uh it was a stressful beginning because you couldn't get out and meet people and do all the regular things that you're trying to do when you're new in a new place and so this year I feel like one year in we're finally like feeling mm-hmm. a bit more settled now because we can actually go out meet people and mm-hmm. and you know make that um you know community uh feel mm-hmm. you know try to make friends that we've been missing and so i i think that's a really good place because it, i almost kind of want to work backwards with you we're talking about portugal mm-hmm. where you are right now but you were a third culture kid and and i i think if you've listened to this podcast podcast long enough folks do know what a third culture kid is because we talk about kids who basically grew up between the ages of zero and 18 crossing borders in, in different places. But where for you does your international story start? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if we're looking at it from you know a very matter of fact point of view, I'd say yes, my early childhood was globally mobile. At the time of my birth, my parents were already expatriated. My parents are from Pakistan, um, but they were already living in the kingdom of Bahrain um, around the time of my birth. But my mom decided to go back to Pakistan and give birth to me there. So I'm really happy that I am born in Pakistan. So I can always say I'm born in mm-hmm. Pakistan. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny, Amanda, she did that because had I been born in Bahrain, um, I wouldn't have uh, received Bahraini citizenship because, you know, the Gulf restrictive mm-hmm. as to uh, their citizenship and who they give it to. And had I not been born in Pakistan, it would have been quite difficult to get citizenship for me mm. then. So my mom's decision was actually a good one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was born in Bahrain. I was born in Pakistan. And then at the age of like four weeks, my parents took me back to Bahrain. And so that's where I spent uh, the first couple of years of my life in, in Manama. And uh, after that, I think I was about two, two and a half. When we moved to New York City, again, due to my dad's job. Um, and and so I remember going to, to kindergarten in New York. I had a very, you know, typical American experience, you know, yellow school bus, uh, all of that. Um, that might be familiar to you. And, uh, you know, we grew up, I, I grew up bilingually. We spoke Urdu uh, at home and then we spoke English outside. So um, it sort of prepared me for this cross-cultural life that I'm living uh, now. And um, living in the U.S. Was, was something that we enjoyed, but there was always a time limit to it. And after almost a decade abroad, uh, my parents decided that they were done living this globally mobile life. And they said, no, no, we're going to repatriate, move back to Pakistan and get you and my sister in touch with your roots and where you really come from. So it was an interesting experience going back to Pakistan. I think I was still pretty young. I was almost uh, I was I was almost seven. So I think I adjusted pretty Mm -hmm. well. But I know my sister, Mm -hmm. who's, you know, six years older than me and was a teenager, had a a more challenging time uh, doing that. Um, 
And it was interesting, you know, I arrived in, in Pakistan, in Karachi. I spoke Urdu well, but I spoke it with an American accent. So I immediately stuck out and had to really catch up and really had to learn how to speak Urdu with a Pakistani accent instead to not differentiate myself when I was speaking mm-hmm. in the language. And and I think that's probably a uh, you know, an experience many TCKs can <laughs> relate to. Um, and yeah, but I think, um, to be honest, after that, I, I spent a huge chunk of my childhood growing up in Karachi. And the oh. reminders of our international and globally mobile life were always there. Like our living room was full of pictures from Central Park and Niagara Falls and, you know, all these hints, uh, Disney World, you know, Disneyland in Florida. But then we became very, very Pakistani in our upbringing, in our roots, in our etiquette, in our eating, in our food. And um, I think it's also where, you know, between the ages of 12 and 18, where they say your identity forms. And so for me, you know, I was living in Pakistan at that time. So I really do strongly identify with Pakistani culture and and food and and all the rest of it. So I am not like most TCKs who might have trouble pinpointing where home is, because for me, home, of course, keeps changing. But I do have a very strong sense of Pakistani-ness, as I call it. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I, I think often when we talk about third culture kids, we... Not that we're trying to do it, but we there's some experiences that kind of shift depending on your relationship with your passport country and your quote unquote home culture. I think you're absolutely right. I think for for TCKs who definitively maybe have would have been in the home culture, especially as a teenager and preteen, that's a little bit of a different experience than if maybe you had been mm-hmm. in New York. And you were visiting back and forth. And one one thing I'm interested in knowing, and I don't I don't know if you've if you've thought about it, and it's it's okay if you don't have an answer for it. But did you ever? I mean, especially now as an adult, did you ever really talk with your parents about their experiences Mm -hmm. living overseas? Because I'm 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 really fascinated for them. What was it like if 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 they shared it with you? You know, being Pakistani, maybe being in Bahrain, obviously first or, or before, and then being in New York, like kind of maybe some of the, what they loved, what were the challenges? Like, did you ever yes, really talk we, about them? That, yes, about we, that I, that's them? such a great question. I think um, we, I mean, I love to compare experiences, right? Because they were the expats back then and now I'm the expat parent now. Um, and our mm-hmm. experiences have been different, but they've also been so many commonalities. Um, for my parents, uh, living in Bahrain as a Pakistani family was 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 like expat light, right? Like, because in the Gulf countries, there are many expats, especially from India and Pakistan. So they, you know, they found friends pretty easily. They had a good community going. Um, they go to get by in English and Urdu, actually, which we joke is almost more uh, <laughs> useful in Gulf countries yeah. than Arabic is because there's yeah. such a big diaspora there. Um, so I think Bahrain was a very soft landing for them. Um, I think moving mm. to New York City was definitely more challenging. Um, there was definitely that feeling of being the other, you know, and, and also the language changes. Because when you move to Bahrain, you're an expat, but you move to the U.S. and you're an immigrant, even though my parents really weren't immigrants because they didn't stay very long or they didn't have any plans to settle um, for the long term. But that's how the society would view you. And sometimes how society views you is also how you start viewing yourself because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so, you know, I think adjusting to the U.S. was was harder for them. Some things were easier, like at least, the, you know, they spoke English, they could hit the ground running, they could do bureaucratic appointments, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, the weather was different. It wasn't hot and swelteringly hot anymore. It was, you know, you know, <laughs> crazy winters and lots of snow. And it was, I think for my mom, quite a bit of, you know, culture shock, like going to a laundromat in the beginning, dragging laundry, you know, these are the things, the experiences she did have in Pakistan or in Bahrain. So I think, I think they definitely did face some more challenges, but they were, I mean, I kind of envy the conviction they had because I don't have this conviction because for them, it was like, let's enjoy this experience while it lasts. But in the end, they always knew where home was for them. And they always knew that they were going to go back 
and um, they wanted to mm. be in Pakistan close to their families. And, and, and people, you know, even me, like I would ask them, like, didn't you want to settle there? Did you want to live there longer? Um, and their answer was, was, was no. You know, it was just a simple no, like they knew what they wanted. So they spent over a decade abroad. But in the end, uh, they were very happy to repatriate. And and then once they repatriated, they never moved again. <laughs> they, they, In fact, they mm-hmm. still say, you know, live in the same house since since moving to Pakistan. So for them, it's a very different trajectory that might be the case for many other TCKs and, and their expat parents. And I think it's as, as a child, I was happy that I had a chance to connect with our Pakistani culture and to be able to live there and to feel so Pakistani until I was at the age of 18. That's, you know, the point where I left. But until the age of 18, uh, you know, it was a very it was a very safe and secure feeling. We never questioned where home was because it was obviously clear that this is where it was. I think you just said something super powerful that I know you've discussed a little bit before mm-hmm. in some of your writings. I, I think you and I have discussed a little bit before in person. And and I, I love that you said it though, that in Bahrain, the language changed, right? They were expats. But when they came West, mm-hmm. they were immigrants. And and that's the label that maybe yes. folks saw them through, even though they clearly knew this is not where we're mm-hmm. coming to settle, right? And and I feel like that's such a conversation point for those yes, of us who are black and brown. Absolutely, especially for brown <laughs> and black expats, like they get labeled differently, even though the act, what they're doing is the same. They're moving from one country to another, um, sometimes from their home country to another country, sometimes from another country that they'd mm-hmm. be moving in to another new country. But because that same act gets labeled uh, and is called, you know, it, it gets different language put on it, uh, that can really mm-hmm. affect how you view your experience as well. And mm. it really also almost determines how your behavior is, because I, I always think like if you're immigrating to a place like, you know, you're going to be there long term, you want to settle there for, you know, a foreseeable future. You do things differently. Um, mm-hmm. I know because one of my uncles, my my dad's brother, he he immigrated from Pakistan to the U.S. with no intention of ever coming back. Right. Completely different mindset. And, you know, he he didn't take his kids back to Pakistan. Maintaining the culture was not important for him. None of that was important. The most important thing was to to live in the U.S. and to be settled there as quickly as possible uh, into life there. And, And so the way that he portrayed things and how he led his life, very, very different from my dad, who, you know, was like, this is an expat assignment. At the end, we will repatriate and we want to repatriate. So, you know, they made sure we spoke Urdu, for instance, knowing that Mm. at a certain point, Mm. you know, um, we would need that language, me and my sister. So the way you your experience is really the language shapes your experience and then your experience ends up shaping your actions as well. And I also wonder, too, you already touched on this, but then also how people treat you. And and, And I don't know, especially through the lens of your parents being in New York, right? I mean, because someone could see them off the street, and not necessarily know. Yeah, you know, they're not they're not trying to be here for the rest of their lives. They're actually just working, and so I think even how people even people perceive you. I mean, obviously, you, you mentioned the Gulf, and you, as we'll get to, have lived lived there later on as an adult. I lived in the mm-hmm. Gulf, so I completely am there with you. Where I'm like, the Gulf is completely a different. <laughs> it's an alternate universe, isn't space. it? <laughs> You know, I tried to describe it to someone the other day, and I think that's, you're right. It, it is, it's like, I've been so many places in the world, and that is like, it is the most different mm-hmm. of anywhere, you know what I mean? And it's not, it's hard for me to describe to folks. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it to you. It's no, not a good or it's bad It's just thing. a very it's different, just, I absolutely agree. absolutely agree. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. And so it's just fascinating to me. But um, so you turn 18, you're in Pakistan. And what do you decide to do? (laughs) I always had the wanderlust and I always wanted to go live abroad. I would look at all these family photos uh, and say, well, you know, like it's great that I did all this when I was like four. And but, you know, I want to do this. I want to go and uh, live really on my own terms. Like I want to move because 
I want to move and I want to go somewhere and I want to do something. So I usually, when I start my story, I usually started at this point at the age of 18, almost 19, when I leave Pakistan for the first time, uh, my parents, you know, they remained there. Remember (laughs) they weren't going to move anywhere again. Uh, So it's just me. It's just 18 year old me with a blue suitcase uh, leaving Karachi with a one-way ticket for Boston, Massachusetts. And this is pretty soon after 9-11 had happened. I was lucky enough to get an American visa shortly before 9-11 took place, uh, for which I had to fly to Islamabad, apply in person. It's a super scary and intimidating process um, to go through, um, knowing that if you get rejected, well, there go your dreams uh, of, of studying abroad. And so I was very lucky. I got my visa just in time and I was also really lucky I was a woman because I have to say Pakistani men and Pakistani boys at the age of 18 or 19 were not getting U.S. student visas because 9-11 happened and it truly changed the world and I think no two countries were as affected as the U.S. and as Afghanistan and then by proxy was Pakistan so you know I mean I was right in the middle of it I, I reached in I arrived at college uh, in Massachusetts, and the first thing that happened was being pulled for a discussion, a briefing session for brown students, for brown Muslim Pakistani students like myself on how to handle um, the changing reality of this new world that we found ourselves in. Because as you may remember, um, there was a huge rise in Islamophobia after 9-11 in the US and being a Muslim was immediately being branded a terrorist or a jihadi or a Taliban supporter. Or for me as a Pakistani, the first question I used to get asked was, do you know where Osama bin Laden is? You know, and, and you're 18. I was almost I was almost 19. So it's, it's, it's a crazy situation to be thrown in. And I didn't have my parents to come with me when I heard all the other so many American friends of mine who had their you know parents come and drop them to college. Like I didn't get that experience. I, I left by myself. I had to look out for myself in this changing world. And as a parent now, I think, oh, my gosh, I feel really I feel for my parents because <laughs> I can relate now because I think almost it was harder for them knowing, you know, our, our 18 year old is flying into Logan Airport. That's where, you know, the terrorists took off from it. All of that. That must have been I think it was tougher for them. I still had the optimism of an 18 year old <laughs> excited to be living her dreams. And so I don't think I dwelled so much upon it back then. But today, as a parent myself, I think, gosh, it must have been really hard for them to let me go. You know, at the time, for whoever is, whenever you you guys are listening to this, I mean, we're recording this about a week after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And man, to even, I mean, obviously, because we were both alive during then, and, you know, I was college age as well, to go back <laughs> into that time frame. And I, I too, was a person who had to move themselves mm-hmm. in for college. My parents didn't move me in. So I, I am totally sitting there going, oh, what a rough time. <laughs> like, what an absolute, because I, were you, I'm assuming by the timing of everything, you must have been in the States, like what, a month or so beforehand or had it already happened? Uh, 9-11 had already happened. And I flew, I, I flew actually a little bit after that because there was no way I could fly anytime then. Uh, things were right. super, super crazy because right. I think that if I, if my memory serves right, the U.S. Uh, invaded Afghanistan about, I think it was mid-October. And so, um, hmm. Uh, there was no possibility at that point to go. And and so um, I, it, it was definitely delayed. It was definitely delayed. And, you know, it was, it's fine. I think many people, you know, of my generation were shaped by 9-11 because I actually, I ended up studying, well, I double majored in economics and, and political science because I found that what was happening during that time was so fascinating but also it really led me to exploring what we were living through. And, and so it definitely was this huge turning point um, for so many of us who were in the U.S. at that point. You know, I always ask this question because I think about my own experiences, you coming now into, in this case for you, going to college in the United States, 
what was your college experiences, especially as you start to think more about mm-hmm. identity, right? Because for you, obviously, you had a strong Pakistani identity, but you, you always did have an international flair because of your early years and kind of where your interests were. So what 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 was great and what, mm. what was kind of hard once mm. you got to college? That's such a good question. Yeah. Um, what I loved the most, Amanda, was the anonymity that living abroad gave to me. Um, in Pakistan, everybody knows who you are. Everybody knows your so-and-so's son or your so-and-so's daughter and um, how you're expected to behave and how you dress and who you talk to and which circles you go in and where you go. All of that is almost predetermined by who you are and your place in society. And I loved that I could sit in the small town of South Hadley, Massachusetts, and nobody knew who I was. And I love the anonymity that living abroad uh, gave to me because it was freeing. I could be who I wanted to be. I could be myself, (laughs) you know, and I think that was my first taste of what living abroad really allows you to do. It allows you to, you know, really be yourself and and do the things you want to do and be whoever you want to be. So I think that part was great. I learned how to cross cultures uh, effectively and make friends and then try to, you know, learn the process and then repeat the formula in different countries and different continents and in different languages. Um, so really Massachusetts for me is a very special place because that's where I learned how to do all of this. And I think It was also a really interesting environment because it was, of course, very international. So, you know, and and, and let's face it, the East Coast is is very liberal. I was probably in a very liberal part of of the U.S. And and that, of course, helped a lot. It did. But then I also had experiences where I would be the one, you know, being picked out (laughs) at immigration, uh, you know, flying from JFK or flying from Logan, going back home. You know, here I am with a brown face and a Pakistan passport that opens from the other side, confusing immigration and custom officials, and constantly having to answer questions about my visa and and when when I'm coming back and show a return ticket, you know, proof of return, um, flights booked, and and all of that. And I remember one very uh, particular instance because I was, like I mentioned, I was studying political science, and in fact, I was taking a class on political Islam. So I'd written an essay on jihad, <laughs> and it was saved on my laptop. And of course, I'm the one being pulled out for the random check, and they even asked me to. Um, open my laptop to prove it's a laptop and not something yeah. else. I don't know. And, you know, I, I saw I saw the officer, I saw the customs official um, looking at my my laptop screen. And of course, what does he see? He sees the word document titled Jihad and double clicks on it. And he asks me, what's this? So, you know, I always had to explain myself. And I was always put in this position of having to explain myself. So, that was frustrating. But on the other hand, it also, I guess I, I got keyed into the realities of the world pretty quickly and trying to understand the prism and the lens through which other people are viewing me. And, you know, if you if you put me in Pakistan, I have to admit, I mean, I come from a very privileged background, you know, educated uh, you know, middle, upper middle class and, and all of the rest. But if you put me in the U.S., people would view me in a very different light. Oh, she's Pakistani. Like, God knows what her family's like. God knows where she comes. You know, like, it's it's a whole different set of rules. So having to constantly explain myself got very tiring. And uh, that was the part I didn't enjoy so much. But I love the international friends I made and the community I found. And so that was what I clung on to. And I think that's a perfect segue for where we're going to go next after the break, because I think you set it up really nicely and sort of already bringing into those cross-cultural pieces and what you've learned, because that's going to be a really big part of your life. And the life that you're living right now. So uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to really pick up and, and sort of talk about your family dynamics, because I, I think that informs a lot of the work mm-hmm. that you're doing. Sure. Right sounds good. So we get asked the most random questions here at the Black Expat. Everything from who ships hair care products internationally to where can I find a solid expat tax professional? This is why we're soon launching a new resource called Buy While Abroad. It's a business directory to connect expats and travelers with the companies that deliver the products and services they need while they are abroad. So if you're a business owner and your business can cater to global nomads, 
especially a diverse clientele, you should visit buywhileabroad.com and share your email address. We will keep you posted when we go live and definitely tell you how you can join. All right, so we're back, and this is going to sound like a very weird segue, but the thing is, the segue works because <laughs> I don't know. I don't normally just pick up talking about relationships in the middle of a podcast, but this actually has a massive impact on the rest of her story. Okay, so you you've been at this point in the U.S. a couple of years. You're obviously a college student. It's really funny. People ask me when I was in college, did I study abroad? And I, because you would think me being me, did you study abroad? And I'm like, no, because my family was still living in West Africa. So Mm -hmm. for me, I would just go, (laughs) it was enough for me to travel between North America and Africa. So I didn't, I didn't study abroad in undergrad, but did you study abroad when you were in undergrad? <laughs> I did. This is a I loaded did. question. <laughs> I did, Amanda. Yeah. I was, so that, I, I always struggle on how to like explain this part because I already was studying abroad because I came to the right, US right. as an international so student. Continually, um, <laughs> continuing your studying yes, abroad. I went yes. from abroad to abroad. Um, I did right. my junior year abroad uh, in the UK. And I decided to go to the UK, and this is, of course, doubly ironic given Brexit and everything that's happened since then. But I went to the UK because I was an economics major and I wanted to specifically study uh, courses on how the European economic model had come about to see if that could be something to be replicated in other developing countries around the world and other regions in Asia specifically. So um, I I went to the UK. It was going to be one year uh, for my junior year. And of course, uh, what happens, I end up meeting uh, the man who is now my husband, uh, I think on day three of being in in England. And uh, that pretty much changed the trajectory of of my life um, because uh, my husband is now my husband. Back then he was he is half German, half Italian, and he was sitting with a bunch of Italian students talking really loudly in Italian and gesturing. And I thought, oh, gosh, how obnoxious is he? Um, because <laughs> I thought he was just really loud. Um, and he came over to me and he introduced himself and he said, hi, my name is Martino and I'm Italian. And before he even came like that, I just believed him. And it was only later I found out, wait a second, he's actually half and he was born in Germany and he was raised in Germany and he's lived in Germany his whole life <laughs> but as my husband uh, jokes hey you know that's the advantage of being a cross-cultural kid you get to choose which part of your identity you start off with and if I'm trying to meet a girl I'm Italian <laughs> wow. so yeah that's how our story started so so just for a little bit of context, I mean, was he considered an international student yes. living in the uh, UK? He, like how yeah, exactly. He, he was an international yeah. exchange student um, from Berlin. So and he was actually getting his master's. So I was doing my undergrad and he was doing his grad uh, graduate uh, mm-hmm. program. And he had come to the UK for exactly the same reason, a year abroad and then would go back to Berlin. So we were both in England for that one year. And after that, I returned to Massachusetts and he returned to Berlin. And so I I guess kind of fast forwarding a little bit back in your in your story, at what point did you guys come back together and in what country? Because right now, there are at least three countries that have been mentioned. Yes, yes. We joked that our love was trans, you know, transnational, transcontinental. It was over the Atlantic. (laughs) That's why we love the Atlantic. Um, Basically. uh, So we, of course, we were in England for a year together where we really got to know each other and, you know, um, decided that, okay, we're going to try and make this work. But after that, Martino, my husband, he returned to Berlin, to Germany to finish his degree. And I uh, returned back to the U.S. to finish my degree. So we knew we were going to be spending the next year or two even trying to get our degrees um, you know, done and dusted. And, and uh, for me, after I, I graduated, I, I, you know, moved down to Houston, Texas, where I started my first job. So um, we, we did the long distance relationship for, I think, what, almost two years. So the first three years of our relationship was one in England, and then two years long distance between uh, Germany and the U.S. Um, and, and we'll get back to that relationship in a moment. I'm just completely fascinated. You moved from Massachusetts <laughs> to Texas. Let's talk about that. 
I was going to say, uh, I know <laughs> we can get to the love story later. That move though, I feel like is the move where that's the hardest one. Yes. I, I always joke that was my hardest move because I really should have needed a passport just to do that move. But you know, I, I really underestimated it as you do, because you think you're just moving domestically from one state yes. to the other and yes. little do you know how different <laughs> Texas is from Massachusetts. So Texas was a huge shock for me. Um, I had been there a few times. My uncle lives there. I have family there. Uh, there's a huge Pakistani community in, in, in Texas. So in a way, it was almost like going back to Pakistan where everyone knew what you were doing and where you were working and who you'd been seen out with the night before at which cafe. But, uh, you know, Texas was just a different ball game, And I started my career in investment banking uh, in Texas. I was working at Morgan Stanley there. So, you know, it, it had its amazing moments. Like I would mm-hmm. go to the Galleria Mall for lunch and I'd spot Beyonce. <laughs> nice. And then it would have its crazy moments where I'd have a flat tire on like one of the interstate um, highways and be like, oh, what do I do? Like really like flabbergasted and not quite sure what to do so you know texas was uh, was interesting i i have to admit i i really didn't like living in houston so i had a lot of prejudice to move myself there um the east coast was more exciting i had hoped to settle in boston or dc or or new york and so i really had to get over that mindset of like i don't want to be here in houston um because i had you know i had been on a scholarship for college but i also had a significant amount of student loan i had to repay back and it's probably true for many many of your u.s listeners and i was determined to do it i didn't want my dad to do it or help me i didn't want to i knew we, i was going to be getting married quite soon i didn't want this to be my husband's you know burden i wanted to get rid of my student loan and my student debt for myself. So actually moving to Houston made the most sense because it was cheaper. I could save more and I could pay off my debt. And I'm glad to say that just a year of living in Houston allowed me to pay off a $30,000 U.S. student loan. Um, And I was so happy I could do that. So that was one of my goals, my personal goal. Well, and this is what's super powerful, what you just said. Number one, the U.S. is so big. I say this all the time. That it's like multiple countries, right? (laughs) But I think even you talking about basically having to reframe your mind because sometimes we'd make moves and they're not, they're not like the place we left, right? Especially if we move all the time and it's hard to, because we want to compare because that, especially if we're having a hard time or it's just so different. And I think even you just talking about kind of like pushing through and kind of seeing this place for what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we have to do that with moves. And I mean, I say this to folks who who move to places all the time. And I think this is a little bit different in your case, but where we envision we're going and the reality of that place is not always the same. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, you said that in such a, in such a diplomatic way, but that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Uh, that's exactly the dichotomy that you experience. And, you know, I'm thinking yeah. I've moved so many times. I mean, I, you know, even moving to the UK, moving from the US to the UK, it was see, almost seamless for me, but moving within the US, well, I actually struggled more <laughs> if I'm being honest. And I think that's why I, I think, that any you can't underestimate any kind of move a lot of times people would come to me now like having read my book and say you know I'm nowhere near uh, I haven't moved internationally as much as you have but I did move from one state to the next I'm like oh I hear you let's talk about that because in a way it doesn't really matter where you're moving to um, but what you have to do is the same you know you dismantled your life in one uh, you know place your comforts your people all of that that you've dismantled your routines and now you need to recreate them in a new environment, in a new place. So that's truly what moving is, right? Creating new routines, meeting new people, having new comforts, like a favorite restaurant or a favorite park or wherever you go to de-stress, right? So so in a sense, moving really, in a nutshell, is, is the same process. And I think that's what, I, that's what my move from Massachusetts to Texas helped me appreciate. 
I mean, and, and you've, you've already alluded to this. I, obviously, you and your partner then end up getting married and she's your husband. <laughs> so did you did you move to the UK then from the United States or did you guys move to somewhere else? Uh, no. So I, I left the United States in 2006. I was I left Houston. I remember walking into my local branch, my local bank branch of Bank of America to close my bank account. And the officer looked at me and said, you're not coming back where are you moving to I said I'm moving to Germany he said oh is this your husband in the military like that's what people assume that you're, you're <laughs> your husband's American posted in Frankfurt or or something right and I said no actually he is German <laughs> so that's why I'm moving to Germany because we're getting married there and then I'm going to continue there and I still remember his words of shock, like, how can you leave Texas? How can you leave the U.S.? <laughs> like, this is the best country in the world. And, you know, and again, that's very Texan. But that was a very hard stop for me. I pretty much knew that this is the last time I'm going to live in the U.S. So it was very much like accepting that, trying to come to terms with it. And the U.S. has given me so much. Like, I, you know, I have friends there. I have family there. My degree is from there. I have work experiences there. But it's also added so much to my identity. It's added so many layers to who I've become. In the end, you know, I really adopted a lot of working habits, a lot of ideas, a lot of my husband likes to joke. I was very American when I moved to, to Germany because um, my idea of everything was just so different based on my experiences there. So, you know, the U.S. really did shape a lot of who I became um, and, and and I actually still still am. So as I explain in my book, um, we, we sew our different layers one on top of the other. So I have a very clear uh, American mm-hmm. layer sewed into my design, you know, and it adds to, you know, who I am today. So I think understanding uh, the impact that a place has had on you and in your journey is something that every globally mobile person needs to do, right? Because there's 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 the good, there's the bad, there's the ugly, there's the good experiences and the uncomfortable experiences. And as I explained in my book, we sew all of that into our design um, because all of them have shaped you. So, I mean, I could be sitting, uh, you know, listening to the news today and if there's a new segment on gun control, control. That is very personal to me based on my experiences, because it's an issue that has affected me in the past and as a result has shaped my ideas and opinions on it today. So, you know, where you live ends up really influencing who you are and how you think, who you become. And a lot of people think once you've left the place that that's it, but actually that's not the case. You take all that with you and it's up to you what you do with it. But to be aware of that, that brings a whole new level of awareness to your journey. So even with the context of all of, of all of what you've just said and, you know, the places you've lived and whatnot, how are you and your husband able to merge your different backgrounds, right? Because you're, you're I'm going to say you're Pakistani, but I'm saying Pakistani in quotes because of all the experiences you'd had up until this point, up including a year spent in the UK, even though, you know, you were a student in the US and everything else. And then your husband, who I'm sure there's a story there even, of course, having... <laughs> an Italian name, right? And, and and has an Italian identity. It's not like there's not an Italian, de- right, obviously. Yeah. But having been born and raised in Germany, you know, I and I'm sure there's a story there. How were you able to sort of bring those cultures together? And so, I mean, I imagine Germany for him, because he grew up there, that, that, so he was on home base. So for you, you have to learn somewhere new. What you would call it, the home ground advantage, right? As we say in uh, in, uh, sports lingo. Yeah. A little bit about him. So he, and the way I would explain it, Amanda, is that if I put my academic hat on, so here I am, the TCK, who's had an early, you know, globally mobile childhood, and then has lived in a few other countries and moved around by herself. And then I have my husband, who is your typical cross-cultural kid, 
he grew up straddling two cultures from birth. So his mom is German and his dad is Italian. His Italian dad left Sicily and moved to Germany looking for work and ended up staying there, marrying a local girl and then building a life there. So um, he grew up with a very strong German identity, but also a very, very strong Italian identity. In fact, because he was in Germany, there was a lot more emphasis on the Italian side um, to keep him in tune with the Italian side. So, for example, his dad only spoke Italian to him and his mom only spoke German. He, he grew up bilingually. Even today, people are amazed at his Italian, which is flawless because he's never lived even one day in Italy. But because there was such a strong emphasis on being that cross-cultural kid, um, his, you know, Italian food, Italian language, Italian relatives, visits every single year to, to Italy. So it really shaped his identity. And then interestingly, in Germany, he was always looked on as the Italian kid with a very Italian name. Whereas when he used to go to Italy, they would just accept him as one of his own. So I didn't know back then. I thought, you know, he's only introducing himself as an Italian. But actually, um, his Italian identity ends up being quite dominant because, again, how society views you is sometimes how you start viewing yourself. So, you know, he's very German when it comes to his work and his habits and his email and his calendar and organizing our moves, our international moves. But then when it comes to, like, food and life and relationships, very, very Italian. So he's what I call a cultural chameleon. And for us to then merge our uh, diverse backgrounds, um, remember we're from not just different countries and different cultures, we're from different languages, different identities and different religions. <laughs> and this is quite a big, uh, this is, you know, I would say it's, um, it's a reality for a brown woman uh, of my uh, culture or of my background to be able to have a relationship, to be married to someone who's so different from you in every respect, that, that causes a lot of furor in, in society. And you're breaking a lot of taboos just by being married, right? Um, we're lucky we had a lot of support from our immediate families. And I think now, but none of our families knew what we should do because they hadn't been in that position before. So we had to figure out our own way. And that was through a lot of trial and error. Um, nobody taught us how to blend cultures. We had to figure that out uh, by ourselves. And that's some of, that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate. And I describe this in my book. How do you blend cultures? How do you reach a compromise when your value system might be different? The way you critically analyze a problem and come up with a solution might be so different. I mean, just to give you a small example, like if my child has, let's say, a problem or a challenge at school, um, me as a South Asian parent, I would immediately look to the authority figure and say, well, let's let's ask the teacher to get involved and maybe the teacher can help us solve this problem. Whereas for my husband, it would be like, no, no, let's let the kids figure out this amongst themselves. There's no need to get, you know, a teacher or anybody else involved. So the way you even approach multicultural parenting <laughs> is really dependent on how you grew up. So it's been a very interesting journey for us trying to A, understand our the influence of our different cultures and B, how do they affect our parenting? And then C, how do you blend very different ways of thinking to come up with the way that you move forward in the world? So these are challenges I think many multicultural couples uh, and international couples can probably relate to um, because it comes up a lot. How do you figure out a way forward? So, I mean, I think at this point, if we if we don't count your life solo, how many moves would you say roughly your family has made? Or let's do it by country. Yes. So how many countries would you say? I think countries is easier because I've lost track in numbers. Um, so I'm currently living in my 10th country, which is Portugal. So if I count the countries uh, chronologically that I have lived in, that would be the Kingdom of Bahrain, the United States, Pakistan, uh, the United States again, so I'm not going to count that again. Uh, the UK, um, Germany, Denmark, Singapore, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Ghana, and now Portugal. So 10 countries. And so as a as an individual who's in a cross-cultural, interracial, cross-ethnic, <laughs> cross-religious, I know, it's like all, all the, the things. <laughs> Has has there been any struggles, not necessarily between you and your family, you have three kids, right? 
or even your immediate family, but has there been, you know, we, I always, you know, the term microaggressions that maybe you guys may have faced, or maybe you've even just faced because sometimes the microaggressions are there or not there, depending on whether mm-hmm. the partner is oh, there. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that you've sort of, you've experienced just in, in any of the places you've, you've lived and just in terms of reaction to you or your family. Oh, that's such an interesting question to ponder. I think, I think our experiences have really varied depending on where we've been living. I have to say in Germany, um, like I said, it was my husband's home turf. So he had the advantage and I had to do all the adapting, integrating, learning new language. And it took a huge toll on me because one minute I'm a, you know, high flying executive earning a six figure salary in Houston, Texas. And the next I am in, in Berlin and I can't even read the newspaper or figure out what the subway announcement is, <laughs> which is probably something super mundane. Like, don't take this train or this train is delayed. But when you can't understand the world around you, it really has a huge impact on your self-confidence and how you uh, view yourself. So, you know, Germany was a tough place. It was a tough place. And some countries are easier to chart out your territory. Like Denmark was a lot easier, ironically, smaller European country, just 5 million people compared to Germany. So, you know, our experience in Denmark was, was a very positive one, but people would still look at us and give us um, you know, an extended look if we were walking down the street, especially when we were in the immigrant uh, areas like of Nobro, you know, where there's a huge Turkish community or a huge Afghan community or a Pakistani, you know, supermarket. And, uh, you know, we de- we definitely got those looks when my husband would go in to get the naan and the chai and all of those ingredients. So, so it's been interesting. Um, I think probably I would have to say that the most dichotomy we experienced was in Dubai. Now, you're quite familiar with living in Gulf countries yourself. And racism in terms of privilege and your skin color is nowhere more, you know, evident than in a, than in a Gulf country and in the, in the Middle East in general, because um, in a place like Dubai, there's an unspoken code. And the unspoken code is this. At the top are the Emiratis, right? The second are the white European Caucasian expats. But then you've got the brown expats, and then you have the black expats. Now, that is the unspoken code of hierarchy that exists uh, in a place like Dubai and also in, in many other places, uh, whether it's Qatar or it's, you know, from I would say from Doha to, to Manama. It's, yeah, give or take, pretty much uh, similar. So, you know, simple things like, let's say our washing machine would break and my husband would make an appointment and ask someone to come and fix it. And of course, be like, oh, yes, 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 Mr. Martino, of course we will, you know, white face, uh, white uh, sounding name. And then who opens the door? Me, the brown Pakistani <laughs> expat wife, you know, and and it's a dichotomy because they're, they're, the way they treat you would change. You know, I always say that we would not have gotten our house in Dubai had it not been for my husband, because our landlord was Jordanian. And he said, oh, yes, yes, German national. Oh, yes, of course. You know, because there's that connotation of being German, of being white. And hence, he's going to make a good <laughs> he's going to make a good, um, you know, uh, rentee. Right. And and I know had I tried to get the same house, there's no way I would have gotten it. And so this was a quite a quite a wake up call even for my husband who had never seen this kind of interaction actually play out in society um, where you can see that how you are treated does depend on your skin color and you know I have moved to many many countries have had many many visas applied for so many visas whether it's student visas or work visas or employment visas or expat partner spouse visas on a pakistani passport and uh passport privilege is real and having a brown face is real but by the time i got to dubai i realized that honestly um they didn't know what to do with me at the driving license institute because i had a brown face and uh i had by then uh, an italian passport and and an american driver's license and i was sponsored on my german husband's visa so that's when you start to see the more different pieces you add of your identity to the puzzle you are actually treated differently so for instance i didn't have to give the entire driving test in theory. I got like a shortcut <laughs> and I got the shortcut because I had a different passport, because I had a pa- passport of privilege and I had a driving license, you know, from a, from a developed country. So it was a very interesting, but also 
yeah, it's a process where you really like open your eyes that this is the reality of the world. And it can be kind of, you know, it can depress you a little bit knowing that, hey, I'm still the same person. I remember the government of Indonesia denied me a, a visa to go to Indonesia. I was dying to go to Bali when we were living in Singapore. My visa was denied. I, it was on a Pakistani passport. And a few months later, I became an Italian citizen through marriage and received an Italian passport. Fly to Indonesia, no problem. And I said, you know, it's the same process. I'm still the same person. It's still me. If I wanted to go and do something nefarious, I, you know, I would have done it. But passport privilege is real. And I think that's that's the point so many people don't understand. And because I traveled and had all these global experiences on such two such different passports, I can see the dichotomy. You know, if I'm going on a Pakistani passport, I get pulled out, I get extra questioning, I, you know, uh, you know, extra security. And then when I'm traveling on an Italian passport nowadays, it's like, oh, you know, congratulations for Italy winning the latest football match. You know, it's, it's a completely different mm-hmm. treatment. And I think that's what is is a shock to discover, but it's also what has really um, shown me the privilege of how you go through this globally mobile life that we have such different experiences we are facing. I don't want to let the moments slip because I know you put a lot of love and and work into it. Can you talk very quickly about the book that you wrote? Because because it, it, it really takes a lot of some of the stuff that you've mm-hmm. talked about, right? In terms of just what I love what you say about the layers upon layers and the pieces and kind of stitching this all together. What kind of, you know, why did you write your book? And, 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 and what was really the motivation, you know, to get that information out there? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I say, Amanda, if you want to read a book that, you know, doesn't exist, write it yourself. I really wanted to read a book that, a described a globally mobile life in very realistic and and like normalizing way like you know not the whole oh, it's the best adventure you'll ever have yes it is the best adventure you'll ever have but can we just be real and honest about also all the challenges you're going to face or all the questions you're going to ask and so the book is called this messy mobile life and the word messy is in there because it can be messy good it can be messy uh, beautiful it can be messy complicated it can be messy oh my god what have i done And uh, I wanted to capture all those messy threads of what happens when you leave the familiar and exchange uh, exchange it for a life in the unfamiliar, which is what we all do. Um, And so I wanted to see, you know, I felt like books on globally mobile people only addressed one part of of the whole question. Either it was about just TCKs, or it was just about culture, or it was just about being in an intercultural relationship or marriage, or it was just about learning a language or being bilingual, you know, and I wanted to bring all of these messy things together in one book, because I felt that's what a globally mobile life does. You're dealing with culture, you're dealing with language, you're dealing with mobility. And in the end, you're asking yourself, who am I now? What are all these experiences leading to? And who who am I? Who am I? Be- who have I become? And who? What does this mean for my family? So that's really what prompted me to write this book, like address all of these issues in one book. And I wanted to write a book that wasn't written from your normal, traditional Western perspective with a white expat who's married to another white expat. I wanted to bring in all that messiness of interracial identities, raising kids across cultures and languages and being brown. I really wanted to highlight that the author is a brown female expat Muslim Pakistani woman, you know, (laughs) person of color, you know, like. These are her experiences. And and the book in the end is not just about my experiences, but I wanted to include all the, you know, voices of other families as well to make it a real authority on what it is like today to move your family across borders. So so that's in a nutshell what it is. And then uh, very quickly, I come up with a metaphor and a toolbox, which is called a MOLA, to show you how you can create your life by design, by stitching all these layers and different pieces together. So it's an artistic way of looking at the life you're building and it's a blueprint uh, for you to apply to your life. One of the few books, uh, as you just said, but it's one of the few books that really is not written from a Western fully perspective. I mean, obviously that's informed some of your work because of your life, but 
And then we start to add on top of it, not written necessarily from a white perspective, <laughs> not that, just because I we're at the point where we need to see diversity of writing Absolutely. and experiences. Absolutely. And and so, you know, I when I saw you were writing this book, I was like, okay, finally. <laughs> Somebody is doing the book and it's, and, and there, like I said, there's great expat literature there, but I think we are definitely in the season where we need to hear more voices like yours and, and, and other voices, because as we both know, expatriation has also changed mm-hmm. and is changing. And I say it all the time on the show, we're seeing more and more people, at least in, in my world, who are going without sending mm-hmm. agencies. And so the type of expats and the accessibility and why people move is is changing, but the needs and the resources need to kind of move with that. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. I love that you wrote this book. I, I, I actually tell people, hey, you got a family. You might just, just you may not need it now, but just <laughs> read it anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I think it's important to put that out there because like you said, it really is like the book really tries to describe the modern, messy individuals and families who are moving yeah. around the world. Because let's face it, I mean, those days of of you know, two people from the same culture moving to another culture and then moving back, like the way my parents did, those days are over and life is super complicated now and and, it, and it's messy. And I wanted to capture that by showing what the reality is of, of modern expat life. You know, sometimes there are no easy answers. Sometimes you'll say you're Pakistani when you're abroad, but when you go back to Pakistan, you're like, God, I can't function here. Like, I don't know anything because none of your adult experiences have taken place on, so to say, so to say, you know, speak your home turf, right? And that's how it is for me. Mm-hmm. I feel as Pakistani as possible abroad, but if I know if I were to go back tomorrow to Karachi, I, I really struggle. I really, really struggle because I left at 18 and now I'm 39. Um, but I've never held a job in my home country. I've never paid bills in my home country. I've never done laundry in my home country. I have never given birth in my home country. I've never driven a car in my home country. So Yes, uh, there is that identity. But then practically speaking, you know, I wouldn't know what to do. All my experience is secondhand from watching what my parents have done or other people have done. So it's a it's an interesting dichotomy. And I know like last year when I was in Ghana in a high risk pregnancy and I knew I might not be able to give birth in Ghana because the facilities there were not the ones that would have been required for me given the complications. And my doctor asked me, well, which country would you feel comfortable giving birth in? And I can tell you my home country was not even on the top five because (laughs) God, I'd be a fish out of water. Maybe I'd have family support, but that's also weird because I've never had family support. I'm used to making my own decisions and not having people interfere with my decisions or judge them. So I actually said Dubai because I'd given birth there once and I thought, okay, that's a pretty easy medical culture navigate but that's how I think as an expat not necessarily where I have support but where I would feel more comfortable and so your decision making process changes well look at you you just give all the advice like I ask a question and I was like "Ooh, that's a teachable moment right there (laughs) oh my gosh Miriam thank you so much for for sharing a little bit of your story I feel like talking to you literally is like going around the world because it's like, well, in this country, but then we got to this country. But if you get to this country. I'm one of those annoying people, Amanda, where you ask me, well, where did you buy your toaster? It's so shiny. And I'll be like, well, I bought it in the country, X, Y, Z. X, Y, Z, yeah. It's so annoying when people do that because you're like, damn it. I was hoping it was from this, you know, somewhere where I can Right. Like I thought it was like from Ann Taylor or Walmart. But what you're saying is I have to go to Egypt <laughs> to go find this one guy in the marketplace who hopefully he might exactly. still be there. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, but we are one of those annoying people because that's what No. <laughs> But it, but it, it's our, it's life, right? <laughs> and and if you, if you are fortunate and have been able to see this planet, I guess this rock that we live on from different angles, then people need to know about it. I mean, I, I always enjoy talking to you just because I think there's something interesting and there are a lot of commonalities there. And so, I'm gonna make sure that your book and your site, and we move to. <laughs> dot com 
is listed in our show notes as well as on the website so that if you want to get in touch with Miriam, she is very much on social media, especially on Facebook. And I'm pretty sure she's on Instagram. I'm feeling like she's on Instagram. But we will have all the links up so that you can follow her and learn more or just reach out to her. So, Miriam, thank you so much for joining oh, today. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's been truly wonderful to, yeah, do this global chatter, I think, with you. Who better to do it with you? Uh, with you. I mean, um, it's been really, really good. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being on here. I mean, <laughs> I may bring you back. I'm just telling you now. I may bring you back because there's other stuff I want to talk about. Yes. So, anyway. I feel like you need to talk much about Ghana, my favorite place to live in. I mean, talk about West Africa, right? I mean, I'm yeah. still, I mean, I've been in Portugal for a year, but I'm still homesick for Ghana. It's just, it's something I realize it's not going to end, um, which is good, which is mm-hmm. a good thing. So the topmost layer of my mola at the moment is still Ghanaian. I haven't quite added the Portuguese layer yet but you know I mean just yesterday I put on a Ghanaian skirt and I felt like myself which is ironic right Mm. but it's so true because that's really what I associate feeling like myself and when you move countries sometimes you don't quite feel like yourself like you're like who am I in this new place it takes you a while to figure that out but sometimes having something from your previous country can help you so that's sort of the stage where I'm at right now (laughs) where I'm gravitating to everything Ghanaian but yeah absolutely I love to talk more about it and anytime I'll be I'll be happy to you just heard an episode of the global chatter podcast a project by the black expat it's hosted by me Amanda Bates and it's edited by Stephanie Fuccio to learn more about this podcast or to learn more about The Black Expat, visit theblackexpat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.